please remain standing with me for the reading of the gospel this morning. From the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our kids are going to remain in here with us today rather than heading to their breakout session uh, for this Easter Sunday, just as an FYI. Um, I have a confession to make to you guys this morning. Preaching the resurrection story is one of the easiest things that I get to do every year, but it's also one of the hardest. It's easy because... I know this story so well, like most of you guys, and I've walked through it so many times, and it's hard for exactly the same reasons. My guess is that uh, your experience is similar. If you grew up in the South or in this neck of the woods, the celebration of Easter and the resurrection story has probably always been a part of your life on some level, even if you did not grow up in an especially religious household. It's amazing, in fact, how many openly non-Christian people still treat Easter like a holiday, like a day that we should gather and feast with family and friends. 
But underneath all of this is this story, and this story contains all of the elements of great drama, doesn't it? There's anguish, there's betrayal, there's suffering, there's abandonment, there's torture, there's murder, there's great love. And if I were reading Dickens or if I was reading Shakespeare, all of those elements would be there because they're just commonplace in great dramatic literature. But this story also contains something completely unexpected, supernatural resurrection. And this supernatural resurrection doesn't just affect the one who is resurrected. It's not just about his good. It's about the good of the entire world. And it is affecting the entire world even to this very day. And yet, many of us have heard this story so much that it's no longer remarkable to us. It's no longer amazing to us. If I were to randomly ask you, what's the craziest story you've ever heard? It's quite possible that this story wouldn't even pop into your head. It's quite possible you would think something like, well, I want to tell a real story. This has become normalized to many of us, and thus it no longer moves us emotionally, perhaps, or pricks our hearts. And some of us are in danger of treating it as story only, as if it is some sort of tall tale rather than what it actually is, reality. And I think my job today is not just to retell what happened, but to implore you, to, to beg you to not let it go in one ear and out the other. To not allow the fact that you have heard it so much to mean that you don't hear it today. Actually, let me take it a step further. I think my job is to remind you that this is true and that it demands a response from you. It, it, it actually demands the whole of your life. Where we pick up today in John 20, the company of men and women who have been closest to Jesus have experienced massive defeat, massive failure. Their rabbi, whom they believed to be the long-foretold Messiah, which means anointed one, has been killed by his own people, seemingly the people that he had come to save, the people that he had come to rescue, the, the Jews. And, and these followers that we meet in the story today were not only powerless to stop it, but in Jesus' most difficult moments, they completely abandoned him. Peter often gets singled out for verbally denying Jesus. I tell you, I don't, I don't know the man. But Matthew's gospel makes it clear that they were all cowards. All of Jesus' closest friends failed him. One completely betrays him for money. One verbally denies him in front of the enemy. The women are seemingly powerless to do anything. The rest run away. Matthew says they fled, seemingly afraid for their own lives. The Jesus movement, which 
had perhaps been at a peak only a week before with the triumphal entry, disintegrates seemingly overnight. And that's where we pick up this morning. Chapter 20, verse 1. Read with me. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. The first day of the week here would have been Sunday. It would have been like today. And this is the genesis of why we gather on Sunday to worship God rather than on the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday. This is one of the earliest practices that develops for the church. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb to prepare the body of Jesus for burial because, if you remember, he had hastily been put into the tomb due to the fact that the Passover was at hand, which is, to me, one of the great ironies of this whole story. The uber-religious Jewish leaders were adamant that Jesus had to be crucified because he seemingly had been blasphemous, right? He had talked about the destruction of the temple and he had declared himself to be the son of God, all of things that were um, unfathomable, unfathomable to them. I can't even say that. And yet they had to do all of this quickly so that it wouldn't defile the Passover. They had to murder him and like get him in the ground, so to speak, because this feast was at hand in which they remembered a time when the Lord had sent a redeemer in the form of Moses to save them from Egypt. Somehow Jesus' murderers feel justified in their actions so long as his body is in the tomb before Passover. In other words, they piously hold on to certain religious standards while flagrantly disregarding others, namely the Ten Commandments. This is why Jesus so often referred to them as hypocrites, most of the time, though, their hypocrisy, I think, was hidden from the casual observer, and yet here it's on full display. Mary, though, in the early morning hours, finds an empty tomb. Jesus is not where he was. She was probably not alone either. The other Gospels record that there were other women with her, and this is also implied here in John. Notice it uses the word we in verse 2. We do not know where they have laid him. The they there possibly refers to the Jewish leaders who were well aware that there was a prophecy concerning the resurrection of Christ, that this was something that Jesus had talked a lot about. Matthew 27 tells us that after Jesus was buried, the Jewish leaders went back to Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter, Jesus, said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. 
Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So the Jewish leaders know what Jesus has said of himself. They're well aware of this prophecy, and they're concerned that Jesus' disciples are going to go and take him out of the tomb and then claim he has risen. And certainly Jesus' followers knew this resurrection language as well. And yet, and yet Mary and the other women clearly went to the tomb prepared to find a dead body. And even when she runs to tell the other disciples, her immediate thought upon discovering the empty tomb is not, He is risen! It's someone has taken him, and I don't know where they've put him. And the same thing is true for the two disciples who raced to the tomb. Look at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You know, often the focus here is on Peter and this other disciple whom Jesus loved, who was probably John, the one who's writing this gospel account. And the focus is on them and their foot race to the tomb, which is just sort of an almost comical addition to this story because John's adamant that he won the race, right? He mentions it twice. But there's something larger and more interesting to me here. John says in verse 8 that they get to the tomb and that they looked in and it says they saw and believed. They saw and believed. And if we're just kind of blowing through this quickly, it can be easy to assume that that means that they believed that Jesus had resurrected. But that isn't what John is saying here. He's saying they saw the empty tomb and they believed Mary Magdalene, who came and told them, someone's taken him and I don't know where he is. And then, what else could they do? They went back to their homes. But Mary, who had presumably followed them back to the tomb, stood weeping outside. As their shame and their defeat overcame them, now they find that the body of their master is just gone. And who knows where he is? So can you imagine this moment? Can you imagine being in this situation? I mean, the picture that John paints makes me believe that despite all of Jesus' talk of rising in three days and of raising up the temple of his body, and despite the fact that this was something he talked about enough that even people who were not his followers were aware of it. 
that no one was truly expecting this moment. Not Mary, not Peter, not John. They weren't truly expecting to show up and find this tomb empty because of a resurrection. And if you're someone who's like skeptical of the gospel accounts, if you are someone who perhaps is inclined to think that this is a sort of revisionist history, just notice what a terrible light it paints Jesus' followers in. I mean, they abandon Jesus. They don't understand the scriptures. They are expecting him to still be dead despite all that he had said. To me, this is one of the predominant evidences for the validity of the Gospels. No one writes revisionist history and paints themselves in such a negative light. It's like John has to get some semblance of validation here by saying, well, at least I, ran, I, I like won the race to the tomb, right? At least I got that right. Sometimes that we, we can have it in our heads that all of Jesus' followers were just waiting for Sunday when he would come back. That that's, they knew that was going to happen, but that wasn't the reality. As verse 9 told us, Peter and John didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And it's not clear if John is referencing a specific Old Testament verse or passage here, or rather like a larger theme that we find throughout the scripture. But notice his point isn't that they didn't know the scripture, it's that they didn't understand it. The reality was that Mary was doing what they were all doing internally. She's weeping beside the tomb, coming to terms with the idea that everything that their lives had been devoted to had been a lie. They didn't get it. And I am no different. Friends, we all live as if the tomb is empty, but the question for you and me is, why is it empty? Is it empty because Jesus is alive, or is it empty because he's been taken and put somewhere else? In the first scenario, the tomb is empty because he is the king of all creation, and that is proven and sealed through his resurrection. In the second scenario, it's empty because he's a dead first century Jewish dissident whose body was stolen by his opponents. If scenario one is true, there is real life, total forgiveness of sins, and eternity with the Father at our doorstep. If scenario two is true, there is nothing. But let me complicate this for us further. What if you say, or what if you claim that scenario one is true, that Jesus is alive, but live as if scenario two is true? What if you claim that he is alive, but live as if that's not actually the case? What if you claim that Jesus is the king of all creation, but live as if there's nothing? The Apostle Paul tells his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, but understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. He says, avoid such people. Paul was not confused. He He saw the very thing that I'm talking about, the very thing that I see the tendency for inside myself, which, by the way, was the very thing that the Pharisees of Jesus's day embodied a a form of godliness. Like from the from the outside, it looked like godliness, the outward appearance of belief, the outward appearance of piety, but the inward denial of its power. In other words, a facade Sadly, we can walk through that list that Paul gave us and not only see the tendency within ourselves, but also for some of us, these things have characterized our experience of the church too. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. For some of us, that is what the church has been for us. But let's be careful not to simply adopt a victim mentality here as if it's only other people who act this way. Let's be honest with ourselves that many of those same things can be found in our hearts as well. Lovers of self, anybody? Lovers of money, anybody? Lovers of pleasure, Anybody? Let me challenge us in three ways this morning in light of Jesus' resurrection. First of all, let us be a people who look for life where there should be death. Let's be a people who look for life where there should be death. Let's be clear. Jesus' resurrection does not make scientific sense. He should be dead. It it makes sense that everyone would come to the tomb ready to find a dead body. Many of them physically watched him die. New Testament scholar John Dominic Crossan argues that this is characteristic of a post-Enlightenment view, like we are all people who are living after the period of scientific advancement known as the Enlightenment. Which means that we're living in a world where virgin births and resurrection and ascension doesn't happen because we believe them to be impossible. But that was not so for the pre-Enlightenment world. In Crossan's words, uh, in that world, it's generally or popularly accepted that such things can and do happen. And yet the disciples who lived in a world where such things were a possibility, still don't expect it. Part of this faith thing is about stepping outside the bounds of this limited, finite, created world, stepping outside the bounds of human logic and knowledge, and stepping into a kingdom where the supernatural is natural. 
where the supernatural is commonplace. Let us be a people who don't simply claim Christ with our lips, but then deny his power with our actions. Let us be a people who not only believe, but who expect Jesus to be risen, who expect supernatural things. Second, let us remember Jesus' words. Just like the disciples, we're so quick to forget the things that Jesus has told us plainly. Namely, that in this life we will have trouble. This life is hard. This world is broken. Jesus is clear that this life is filled with temptation and sin and fear and struggle. But we are to take heart, he says, because he has overcome the world. And he has overcome the world through his resurrection. Not just through his words, not just through his teaching, but he has overcome the world by coming back from the dead. Now, if the tomb is empty because his body was taken, frankly, who cares what he said? Right? He's just another moral teacher in the history of the world. But if the tomb is empty because he's alive, then his words are literally like pure gold. When he says to take heart because he's overcome the world, we can believe him. When he says don't worry because your father knows everything you need, we can believe him. When he says I'm going away to prepare a place for you, we can believe him. And if we believe him, the response of true belief is faith. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Heart belief, not just intellectual belief, but, but I know it in my heart, even if it doesn't make sense to my brain. And Paul says the locus of this belief is the heart, and it's the resurrection, not just the historical validity of Christ, but the fact that he rose. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, this is the essence of coming to Christ like a little child, willing and eager to accept and believe even what may seem like the most implausible things because you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And then third, let us walk by faith and not by sight. The result of being a people who believe unbelievable things and who remember the words of Christ is that we become a people whose lives come to be characterized more by faith than by what is like logical or reasonable. We become a people who, like the apostles, are more likely to take risks for the kingdom of God. We become a people who treat our money as if we're not storing up for ourselves treasures on earth, that there is a life after this. We become a people who learn to rely on prayer, which is easily the most supernatural thing that we can do on a daily basis. And we become a people who literally believe that the Spirit of God is living inside of us, that that is not metaphorical, but it's actual. None of those things make earthly sense, guys. Which is why faith, the, the heart belief in things unseen, is 
the posture of the Christian life. Rather than forgetting the things that Christ has promised, like this moment at the empty tomb where it's like they've forgotten all the things he said about raising on the third day, we are seeking to not only remember them, but to literally stake our lives on them. Let's close with this, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look inside the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Woman, who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Guys, Jesus in his grace does not leave his followers to debate the empty tomb. Like, did he or didn't he? He appears to them, and as an aside, I find it extremely significant that the first voices to announce the risen Savior are female voices. Jesus' desire is that all believers, both male and female, would boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel, which is dependent on the empty tomb. As one pastor said, if the tomb isn't empty, then the gospel is. And here's the thing, even though the incarnate Jesus is not presently here, he still desires to make himself known to you and to me. He still desires to manifest his power in your life. We are not left to only debate intellectual propositions about Jesus' validity, but as people who have the Holy Spirit of God, who are literally walking temples of the Lord, we also have the potential to experience God's power in our lives now. And God is at work in this. It's not enough for Mary to see like a masculine figure here in the garden. Jesus has to reveal himself to her. And this is true in multiple places where people who don't recognize Jesus come to recognize Jesus. And it's not because they're more intelligent or they're more capable in some way. It's because Jesus reveals himself. He, he shows himself. And if you're a believer today, there was a time in your life where you did not recognize Christ, and then you came to recognize him. He revealed himself to you. And if you're not actually a believer today, Jesus longs to answer the prayer, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Lord, show me who you are. He honors those of us who earnestly seek him. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. 
Friends, my prayer for all of us today is that the risen Savior will increasingly be the driving force of the center of your life, that our lives, our families, our careers, our friendships, our passions will revolve around a tomb that is empty because Christ is risen, and that this story will daily energize, empower, and excite lives of faith and full devotion to the risen King of all creation. Let us pray. Father, we give you glory this morning for your goodness and grace and mercy. We were hopelessly dead in our sin, and yet in only the way that you could, you made a way. Father, we thank you for sending your only son. We thank you that he willingly went to the cross and in doing so bore the full brunt of your wrath towards sin so that we might be cleansed and healed. Father, would you reveal yourself to us today? Would you show us that this is not just a story but that this is truth, that this is reality. And God, help us as we wrestle with the full implications of that truth. Help us to be a people whose lives are truly wrapped around the reality of the empty tomb. And Father, give us grace when we are just like Mary and these disciples, for those times when we just don't get it, when we just don't see it, Father, help us. We love you and we thank you and it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us.